at our home in, in Cedarville. Lieutenant Governor is in Columbus, and we have uh, three doctors who are going to be joining us uh, from, from all over the state, so we appreciate that very much. Um, because we're in Cedarville, we can't do our split uh, screen with our American Sign Language interpreters. Um, so instead, today's uh, update uh, in American Sign Language is available live from Opportunities for Ohioans with Disabilities. So you can search Ohio OOD uh, to find interpreting live on Facebook and YouTube, or you can go directly to these links. The, directly, the links are facebook.com slash Ohio OOD or youtube.com slash Ohio OOD. Uh, also, if you're not able to watch live, you could access the videos later on these channels uh, or on the Ohio channel. I'm wearing a uh, green tie today for two reasons. Uh, it was sent to me by Lake Erie College in Painesville, Ohio. Uh, Lake Erie College can trace its beginnings back uh, to uh, Willoughby Female Seminary, which was founded in 1847. Uh, the seminary was then the only institution of higher education for women in the Western Reserve. Uh, as one of the oldest institutions for higher learning in the Western Reserve, Lake Erie College is certainly proud of its long heritage. From its start as a female seminary to a co-educational institution of today offering undergraduate and graduate degrees to individuals of all ages, uh, the college has been a leader in higher education in Ohio for 160 years. I'm also wearing the green tie today to recognize that August is Child Support Awareness Month. And to all those who work in this area, uh, thank you. Uh, what you're doing is very, very important work. Uh, the Ohio Child, Child Support Program serves more than a million children and collected nearly $2 billion in support for them over the last year. Uh, on the good news front, I'm going to let you know that um, Director Annette Chambers-Smith, the Ohio Department of Rehabilitation and Corrections, is better. Uh, she was diagnosed with COVID. Uh, she has now been cleared to return to work, although, frankly, I know that she's been working from home. Uh, we're all very grateful that she's recovered, uh, and we continue to wish her the best for a great, great recovery. This is a uh, kind of a special press conference today, uh, where our focus is going back to school. Uh, we know in Ohio, uh, we don't have a set date for when kids go back to school. This is determined by the school. It's determined by the school district for our public schools. Um, we're going to today hear from three prominent doctors uh, who specialize in children's health. Dr. John Bernard from Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, uh, Dr. Patty Manning from Cincinnati Children's Hospital, uh, and Dr. Adam Mazoff from Dayton Children's Hospital. Uh, but first, let's, let's start with our normal numbers and we'll look at some other, other numbers as well. So we'll first start with our data slides, which should be coming up on, on your screen. Um, good news, uh, we're seeing a little downturn as far as the number of cases, uh, 1,095 in the last 24 hours. Uh, our deaths, uh, sadly, were 35 that were reported. 
hospitalizations are up 131 and ICU admissions are up a little bit as well at, at 19. Let's go to uh, the next chart. Uh, Eric, this is a chart that we showed you uh, last week. And this is kind of a little sneak preview. We've been putting these out on Wednesday. Uh, but you can see the states. Uh, this is the what we call the travel advisory. Uh, just like when you go overseas, there's sometimes a travel advisory. Well, this is a travel advisory for the six states. Uh, they're at 15% positivity uh, or or above. Uh, in those states, you can see we, we, we start out with, with Idaho at 17%. Uh, Nevada is 19%. Uh, Arizona is 18%. Then we go over to Mississippi uh, at uh, 26%. Uh, Alabama at 20 uh, and Florida at 18. Uh, as you know, we've been running a little bit uh, over five and uh, five positivity. So some of these states are five times what our what our positivity is. So we just ask people to be careful when they come back. We would, we would ask them uh, if we have visitors from those states Quarantine. We'd also ask um, Ohioans who go there when they get back be very, very careful for 14 days into quarantine. Uh, Eric, let's go to our regular slide. Uh, this is not new. Uh, we're going to be getting a new one in two days. Uh, but again, uh, you know, one of the things that we're going to be talking about today is going back to school. Uh, we're going to show a, a map in a moment pre prepared by by the Ohio Department of Education, uh, which shows what school districts are going back in, in, in person. So again, this shows uh, the trend that we have been seeing. Again, the same map we had last week on Thursday, uh, but you'll see, you'll see the red uh, counties there. Uh, and you also see that we get fewer and fewer of the yellow, yellow counties. Uh, so Eric, let's go to the next slide. Um, we started a couple of weeks ago ranking counties by positivity. Uh, this is 1 through 88, and these are new numbers. Uh, these are new numbers as of yesterday. Uh, and uh, excuse me, I misspoke. I didn't mean to say positivity. These are actually ranked by order of um, how many cases they had in the last two weeks per 100,000 population. So it, it evens things out based upon the population uh, and what you will see, we'll, Eric, we can go to the next slide, which is uh, the top 10. It's a little easier to see. Uh, these are the top 10. We'll hold on there a minute. Uh, uh, Mercer County, uh, still uh, number one. Uh, Champaign County, number two. And Dark County, number three. Uh, so we start off with three relatively small counties or more rural counties uh, that have the highest amount of, of cases per population for the last 14 days. Uh, we then go to Lucas. Uh, then we go another smaller county, not in geography, but in the population. And that's Lawrence County. Uh, then in central Ohio, Perry County, again, another smaller county. Fairfield, kind of a mid-sized county. Uh, and then Franklin. Uh, and then uh, clear over in the eastern side of the state, Columbiana. Uh, and then Seneca, Seneca County uh, as well. Um, again, Keep these in mind as we as we will be looking in a minute about where schools are going. Um, in Columbiana County, two long-term care facility outbreaks. Uh, one facility had a large number of cases. Uh, they have concerns about large venue events, uh, including flea markets, uh, where they were seeing no facial 
coverings or very few people uh, and not much social distancing. Also note uh, that the junior fair, I'm, I hear from my friends in Columbiana County, went very well and it was a very safe, safe fair. So we thank them for that. Seneca County, uh, also we start off with a flea market. Uh, and when I talked a few days ago to, uh, on Monday, uh, Monday morning, I talked to uh, all our health directors around the state, uh, 113 health uh, directors. I think there's 80 some that were actually on there. Uh, but one of the things they, they talked about was flea markets, not just in Columbiana County and Seneca County, but in other, other counties. Um, in addition, um, we've seen some incidents in regard to Seneca County with weddings. Uh, also in Seneca County, long-term care facility, we've seen an outbreak. Um, so uh, those are some of the things that, that we're seeing with those two counties. We'll have more of all our counties uh, on Thursday when we, when we do, when we do our, our up, update. Uh, just a comment about, about flea markets. Uh, we would just remind everyone that flea markets are a lot of fun. Uh, should be pretty safe. They're outdoors. Uh, usually they're outdoors, not always, uh, but usually outdoors. People can come and, and have a good time and look around. But uh, I would just remind everyone who is in charge of the flea markets, please do everything you can to keep the social distancing. Uh, people should be wearing masks uh, when, when they are there. So again, anyone who's going to a flea market, have fun. Uh, anybody who's running a flea market, uh, hope you do well, but uh, please, please be careful. Eric, let's go now to a, a chart, uh, and this goes directly to some of the things that we've been, uh, we're going to talk about today. And this is, this is young people. And we've shown this chart before. This is kind of an, kind of an update in, in the chart. Let me get it out here. Um, this is percentage of cases by age group. And if you look at the age group of zero to 19, if you go back to March, uh, it was only 2.4% of our total cases. Today, it's almost 13% of our total cases are people, uh, young people, zero to 19. Uh, if you go to the next uh, level down, age 20 to 29, uh, in March, it was 12%. Uh, and now it is about 19.4%, uh, a little bit less than it was in July and what it was in in June. So just, just kind of interesting to see uh, see that that breakout. Uh, Eric, let's go to again the map. Okay, this is our, our map again and let's flip beyond that Eric and we'll go to uh, a map uh, that was done, education model map. Uh, this is done by the State Department of Education uh, and it as of August 6th. So some of you may have seen this. Uh, know the Dayton Daily uh, carried it. Uh, there may have been other papers that have carried this uh, map as well. But let me kind of go through this uh, because this is, uh, I'd asked the department to prepare a map to kind of show us um, how many of our kids are going back to school uh, in person, how many school districts are going to start uh, remotely, uh, and then how many are doing a hybrid. So as you look at this, uh, let's start with uh, what is kind of a light yellow, at least on, on my screen. Uh, this is, uh, schools are, are planning when they start back in to go basically live uh, with students in the schools. Um, this is referred to as a five-day return, simply meaning that the kids are going to go back in school like, uh, pretty much as they normally would. This is in-person instruction. 
Uh, sometimes the schedules will be adjusted, and of course, the configuration of the school may be adjusted. But this is kids who will be there uh, in, in person. <clears throat> so that's the light yellow. Uh, the blue, that's all remote. Uh, those are students that are going all remote, and you'll see um, a lot of our urban uh, centers, our, our city schools are going uh, remote, online learning. All students uh, will receive only remote learning instruction, which may be teacher-led or student-led, but it will be, re be remote at least at the beginning. This is how they're going to start off. Um, green, the green that you see there is a hybrid model, a mix of in-person and remote learning education, noting that some grade levels may be all in-person in or fully remote. So it's a real mix there. So again, the yellow is in-person. Uh, that's how they intend to start. Uh, the blue is they're intending to at least start uh, online uh, learning completely. And the green is the hybrid or the combination of, of those two. A um, couple things about this information and some qualifications uh, to it. Uh, this is what we know today, actually back a few days ago on August 6th. Uh, it is public schools only. Uh, so we don't have... Uh, their uh, the parochial schools or, or any kind of private schools. Um, it only captures traditional public school districts and it does not capture all the subtleties of our hybrid models where different grade levels may be going in person or in fact may be going remote. Uh, so based on what we know now, uh, we have 325 school districts uh, in the state who are planning to return full time. Uh, that represents about uh, 590,000 public school students, or 38% roughly. These are all rough figures, but approximately 38% of students would be going back to school uh, in, in person. Um, we have 55 districts, or about 25.6%, or 398,000 students uh, that will be fully remote. So again, that's 55 districts, 25.6% um, of, the, of the school population will be going at least starting off online. Uh, we have 154 districts or 24.5%, uh, which is approximately 380,000 students will be doing some, for, some form of hybrid schooling. Uh, there are 78 districts uh, for which a few days ago we did not have the data on. And so some school districts are still deciding uh, in, in some cases, maybe we just don't have that in, information. So that kind of gives you a, uh, an idea, uh, gives me an idea of kind of what is happening uh, as schools are making individual choices. And of course, as parents are making individual choices. Um, let me just talk for a moment before we get to our three doctors. I'm uh, anxious to, to hear what they have to say. Um, but as we look at our schools. Um, and I've talked to a lot of superintendents, I've talked to a lot of teachers. Um, and let me just say, uh, I think our schools are doing a very good job uh, getting ready. Uh, those that are gonna be online or those that are going to be in person, I think they're doing a, a good job. They've been working very, very hard. Uh, for those who that are gonna start uh, either hybrid uh, or totally in person, um, I think uh, they're going to do a very, very good job. Uh, look, uh, our teachers, uh, our principals, 
uh, folks that just work in the school, that's in the cafeteria, wherever it is, um, every day they work hard when there's no COVID to protect our kids. Um, I've known a lot of teachers o over the years, um, related to some, and they do a phenomenal, phenomenal job. And, and so I have every confidence that they're going to do everything that they can uh, and have taken every precaution they can to keep your children or your grandchildren safe when they go back to school. One thing I pointed out as I had some discussions this past week with school superintendents, and I've said to them, I have, I'm totally confident that you're going to do a great job. You've been focusing on this, you've been getting ready for this, but um, whatever is going on in the community will be reflected in your school. Uh, you know, if it's high COVID spread throughout the community, it's going to be high in your school. And there's, there's really no way uh, of changing that. So no matter how good the schools are, they basically get kids coming out of a community that may be high. Uh, and so my plea today to uh, parents and grandparents, and if you don't have a kid in school, um, if we want our kids to go to school, we want them to be there in person. If we want them to play sports, if we want them to be in whatever club they're in, whatever their passion is, uh, and you know, there's nothing better than having your child care a lot about something. That might be sports, it might be drama, it might be band, it might be art. If you want them to be able to have that experience, then it's incumbent upon all of us, uh, every single one of us, to do everything we can to keep down the spread in the community in which that school lives. Uh, and that's the best thing that we can do. Uh, the most important thing we can do to keep our kids in school for those kids who are going to start in school um, and to keep them in school and keep them able to go. Uh, what we do is going to really frankly determine that, uh, what that community does, what we do in our community. And for kids who are starting online, but the school is looking forward and saying, hey, you know, maybe after a while we'll be in a position where we think we can have kids in school again. What we do in that community is going to determine where that opportunity is there for our kids and our grandkids and our, our neighbors' kids. So we all think that being uh, in school in person is important. Um, and the way to ensure that is for us to wear a mask when we're out, uh, keep our social distance, uh, not go to mass gatherings of people or large gatherings of people, uh, and just to be careful. Stop the spread of it. Slow it down. Um, it's really exactly what we need to do. And that's the best thing that we can do uh, if we have a real passion for having our kids in school and a passion for having our kids, whether it play sports or art or engage in art, whatever the kid likes to do, young people like to do. So uh, we, that is kind of where we are at this point. Uh, let me now go, uh, and I'm really happy uh, to welcome Dr. John uh, Bernard, who is the Chief of Pediatrics at Nationwide Children's Hospital and President of the Research Institute at Nationwide Children's. Uh, doctor, uh, welcome. Thank you very, very much for being with us. And I know that uh, I've been told that you've been leading a team of physicians and researchers across some of Ohio's children's hospitals um, to analyze the prevalence of COVID-19 among children. Uh, and I wonder if you could just uh, maybe tell us uh, some of the things that you have found and kind of what the status is of uh, COVID-19 among our young people in Ohio today. Uh, uh, thank you, Governor DeWine. I am privileged to speak on behalf of Ohio's six children's hospitals, uh, which are 
are uh, overseen by and um, uh, work together under the auspices of the Ohio Children's Hospital Association for really many, many years, but certainly in the COVID era, we've been working much more closely together to share best practices and ideas and also to collate data. So for the past uh, few months, we've shared our data with one another and uh, I'll review some of those learnings with, uh, with, uh, with you today. Great. So first off, a, a few high level comments. If children get coronavirus infection, let's, let's be really crystal uh, clear. They get coronavirus infection and they get it not infrequently. Fortunately, uh, most children are reasonably well with their symptoms of, of uh, COVID-19. Uh, we know that about 90% of them do really exceedingly uh, well. However, a smaller fraction, 10% or maybe a little bit less, actually get sick and need to be in the hospital. And children with certain medical conditions actually can become critically ill and have been hospitalized in our Ohio Children's Hospitals and in our intensive care units. So small number get really sick. Most kids do well. We're very grateful for that. But just to make sure folks know, it can be a very serious disease in certain children. Now, in Ohio Children's uh, Hospitals, uh, we're privileged to have six of the country's best here in Ohio. We took a different cut at the, the data, and we were really interested in knowing uh, what fraction of children what percentage of children who have symptoms that are compatible with COVID actually test positive. Uh, so we've done uh, over the course of the past uh, uh, five-ish months, we've done about 14,000 tests for COVID in children that have symptoms that um, suggest to our physicians that uh, it may be compatible with COVID. And we found 8.6% positivity. We're also interested in the test positivity in children that don't have signs or symptoms of COVID. And uh, we're not out surveying in the community, so how can we get a best estimate of that? Well, we are, most of us are testing all the children admitted to our hospitals, whether they have COVID-like symptoms or not. And we're also testing children that are gonna undergo surgery uh, in the near future that's an outpatient elective surgery. So that's as close as we can come to a to a asymptomatic population, which has been talked about very frequently in the lay press and also in the medical journals. And since mid-March, when we first started testing, we've done about 20,000 tests in these asymptomatic children. And we find that a positive rate from the beginning of about 1.4%. Now, I would like to point out that that number has been rising in the past uh, month or so, and is, is uh, now at about 2.9% if you just look back for the, the prior week. So we do think that there's some increase in the number of children that are asymptomatic, uh, but test positive from, uh, for COVID. And by the way, I do wanna say that um, the information that I'm giving you today is in children that are basically less than 18 years of age. We have also broken down our data by age. We're very interested in, in um, the, the spread from age zero to, to uh, age 18. And we have found that, uh, that um, uh, older teenagers or really young adults at the age of 17 
are the highest uh, prevalence of test positivity amongst all the children that we uh, all the children that we uh, test. And we believe that's because 17 year olds are now often driving and they are socially much more uh, active and uh, tend to test positive statistically significantly more than uh, younger children. Now, let me talk a little bit more about um, the severity of the disease. So of all the children that um, we've encountered that have been positive across the state, 8% uh, have re required admissions admission to one of our children's hospital. And of those 8%, 1% have had to go into our intensive care unit and some have been really critically ill and on ventilators. So uh, again, it can be a very serious disease in children. And some of these cases occur in children with underlying medical conditions such as obesity and type two diabetes, type one diabetes for uh, example. And the last thing I would like to say just about the types of children that are getting COVID in our, in our state is that we have learned that uh, the prevalence of test positivity is four to six times higher in children from underrepresented minority groups, specifically uh, Hispanic children and black children. That's an observation that's really played out across the United States and it certainly seems to be playing out here in Ohio, regardless of the, of the um, cities in which our children's hospitals are, are located. So finally, I think many of us have heard about this multi-system inflammatory uh, syndrome of, of children. And interestingly here in Ohio, we've uh, had 13 cases that we've identified at our children's hospital and far, far fewer than some of the hot spots across the country like New York uh, Miami and others. So I think we're fortunate in that regard. In fact, some of our hospitals have not even even seen a case. And I just will report today uh, happily that as of this morning at about seven o'clock, none of our children's hospitals had uh, children in their intensive care units being cared for uh, with COVID. Uh, so a good report for today, at least. Well, doctor, thank you. That's uh, very thorough and uh, I appreciate it. And I hope you can uh, Stay with us as we may have some questions uh, from from the news media. Certainly, I'd like to go. I pre appreciate that very very much. Great uh, great overview of what we're seeing in Ohio, what you're seeing in Ohio, and what all our children's hospitals are seeing. And um, I agree with you. We are blessed with some amazing children's hospitals in Ohio. Uh, it's just a, a great great thing for for our families. Uh, let me now welcome uh, Dr. Pat Patty Manning. Uh, Dr. Manning is a chief of staff and a developmental pediatrician at Cincinnati Children's Hospital. Uh, Dr. Manning, thank you very, very much for being with us. Um, I wonder if you could tell us, um, maybe start off with um, what is the research telling us about kids being able to spread the, the virus? Sure. Thank you, Governor. It's a, a, a privilege to be able to speak on behalf of such an important topic and on behalf of the Ohio Children's Hospital Association. You know, we're really just learning uh, what children do in terms of spread, but I think it's important to restate what you've already said and what Dr. Barnard said, and that is that children do get COVID. They are not immune from COVID, and when you have COVID, you can spread COVID. There's some very early research that suggests that the type of spread may differ by the age of child, um, but it's a preliminary, and it's hard to really 
um, extend that research beyond uh, just some initial thoughts about who might be more contagious. Uh, I think it's safe to say that if a child has COVID, they'll, they can be contagious whether they're symptomatic or not. Uh, and as we have more time, we'll learn more about what types of children spread, who spreads more. It's fair to say that younger children who need closer contact in their care might be at more risk of spread. Uh, and so that the younger you are, the more likely you may be to spread because your care has to be in more close contact. But that, but that come, comes about because of the length of time with that child and maybe also because of the closeness with that child. And those are two factors that are important. That's very important. It's a very good point that, you know, we talk a lot about close contact and what close contact means uh, with regards to transmission. So close contact, to remind everyone, is under six feet for more than 10 or 15 minutes. And so as you're obviously aware, most young children need close care. You have to hold them or you have to feed them. Uh, and you're going to do that for longer than 10 or 15 minutes. Um, but if you can be distant uh, from older children, uh, more than three, four, five, six feet, and and you can do that for, uh, or when you are close, it's under 10 minutes, you're at less risk. And then, and then doctor, you, you may have covered this, but what about kids over, over 10, the older, the teenagers, maybe uh, early, early teens? What? So the older children and the teens, as we heard a little bit already, especially the teens and the mobile teens are at great risk for spread because they're very active and they're in close contact with each other. We don't have a lot of evidence that says that they spread more or they spread differently. But again, that's another area of important study that we're waiting on. I wonder if you can talk, um, you know, uh, the reason we're doing this today, doctor, is as people are getting ready to send their kids back back to school. And I wonder if you have, based on your research and your knowledge, any kind of uh, tips for students or parents, uh, administrators, uh, to keep schools safe. And I know schools have been working very hard, uh, but we thought we'd take this opportunity to have you talk directly to people of Ohio and uh, tell them what, uh, what you know based on your, your, uh, your, your uh, studies and uh, your expertise. Absolutely. And I, I just want to echo what you said about the hard work that's being done by all the school leaders and administrators. They have such a huge lift and, and the exposure that I've had to the work that they've done has been uh, it's been just impressive um, what school leaders are doing to keep our kids safe. Uh, and we recognize that opening a school is a local decision. It's a community decision. It's based on many local factors. Uh, as pediatricians, we do support and are biased in the direction of in-person education when possible. Uh, and for that education to be safe, there are really four very specific strategies in order of importance that we want schools and families to be aware of. The first is masking, that everyone can wear a mask, everyone should wear a mask. It's recommended that children in K through 12 wear masks. That will protect everyone, teachers and students. The second is distancing. And so we talk a lot about the importance of distancing in six feet, and six feet is optimal, six feet is great, but three feet is also good. And four feet's a little bit better than three feet, and five feet is better than four feet. And so we know there's a continuum of safety uh, that can be in place in schools. We also all recognize how hard it may be to keep children six feet apart at all times. So I've talked to many families and many teachers about doing your best, recognizing that some distance is better than no distance, and six feet is optimal, but it's not always gonna be achievable. The third aspect of safe care and safe education is hand hygiene. And so this is something we've all been hearing a lot about, washing our hands, using hand sanitizer. This is something that should happen on a regular schedule in schools. It should be made fun. 
and kids can be engaged in this type of activity and be part of that. And then the fourth most important factor is cleaning surfaces. And sometimes we place a lot of emphasis on cleaning surfaces as if it's the most important factor, and it is important. Um, but the good news is that COVID is not very hardy. It dies when it dries and it dies in the sunlight. And so we don't need extensive, over-the-top, elaborate cleaning processes. We need our usual routine cleaning processes. We need to wipe down high-touch surfaces. And, um, and we need to really focus on hand hygiene because if our hands are clean, then we're all really protected. Another important factor uh, is ventilation. And there have been a number of studies that demonstrate that areas that are better ventilated uh, have lower risk of disease transmission. Um, we know that schools vary in their ability to provide different degrees of ventilation, but at any time that a teacher can open a window, can take a class outside when it's appropriate, at the discretion of the teacher, those are activities that will help as well. And those, um, I think you said at the beginning, those are cumulative, do all of them, is that the, is that the they're cumulative, but they're in order of importance. So the masking is the most important, followed by distancing, followed by hand hygiene, followed by surface cleaning. But together, they create a very robust package for safety. And I, I want to also echo what you said earlier, and that is that, um, you know, what we do in our community will impact our schools. We are all connected. We are all in this together. And so what happens in our communities will impact our schools. And what happens in our schools will be reflected in our community. Uh, if we want children to do these things, we, if we want children to wear masks, we have to wear masks. We have to model that behavior for them as the adults and the parents in their lives. Uh, and so it's really all for one in, in this type of uh, climate that we're in. Doctor, I wonder if you could, you know, talk a little bit uh, about uh, kind of the stress. I mean, uh, this has been a stressful time for adults, stressful time uh, for, for kids. Uh, kids are going to be starting back in school. Uh, some of the protocols that they're going to have to follow will be different. Uh, some kids will be wearing masks, maybe for the maybe for the first time. Um, any advice for parents? Any advice for teachers as we we kind of start back in this uh, great unknown or something at least different for us? Exactly. One one piece of advice I've given a lot of families, including just this morning when I was in clinic is to uh, let children know that it's okay to be uncertain. There's a lot of uncertainty. We've been dealing with a tremendous amount of uncertainty. And sometimes children look to us for uh, recognition and approval of that uncertainty. Yes, we know it's different. We know that things have changed and that's okay. Um, but we're gonna learn together as we go. So parents talking to their children and giving them uh, some, some warning and some heads up about what may be coming, doing a little bit of rehearsal around mask wearing about hand hygiene. Um, we talk a lot in my field about using stories and social stories to kind of illustrate, here's what's going to happen, here's what it might look like. Um, most children and most people really benefit from structure. So preparing children who may have not had a lot of structure over the past several months, uh, preparing them for the, uh, the restart of some structure of sleep schedules, wake schedules. Uh, I, I talked about that literally all morning with families about the importance of getting back onto a schedule and how much schedules and predictability help everybody. Uh, and so I think there are a lot of basic things that families and teachers can do, starting with just talking to children and trusting that they're actually going to understand and be able to comply. Dr. Manning, thank you very much. Very, very helpful. I uh, wonder if you could stay with us a little bit. We may have some questions from the from the news media, but uh, thank you for those good, good instructions and those those good tips. We, we appreciate it very, very much. Let me now welcome uh, 
My third doctor, Dr. Adam Mizoff, Chief Medical Officer at Dayton Children's Hospital. Uh, doctor, thank you very, very much for being with us. Uh, I know that you've been working with physicians at Dayton Children's to develop a protocol for how schools respond uh, if and when COVID appears in their schools. Um, so first of all, thanks for joining us, but I wonder if you could kind of maybe run through some examples uh, of how schools should react, um, kind of a, maybe a, a, a drill, so to speak. You got this circumstance and this circumstance, and then how does, how does the school react to that? So thanks for joining us. Uh, thank you, Governor. It's a pleasure, and I'd like to echo the comments of my colleagues. They're very important that <clears throat> the best things we can do uh, start at home in showing our kids uh, how, this, how this can be and how predictable we can make it. So I appreciate the question. Uh, we have some slides that I'd like to show you. Uh, we have been working uh, closely with the school systems, with the health department, um, and with our primary care doctors uh, to try and help develop a path forward, if you will, an evidence-based guide, an algorithm, a way for people to start thinking about how to manage these problems as they arise, because we know that uh, as school starts up, there'll be a lot of questions, a lot of concerns, and a lot of things that may change. This slide is part of our algorithm, and so I, my intention is not to walk through this uh, in great detail, but just to highlight a few things for you. The first is, if you look at the top left corner, the box uh, is where people start, which is, or have you been exposed to somebody with COVID? And if the answer is yes, it goes across the screen and asks the question, and Patty referred to this, that were you within six feet and there for longer than 15 minutes? The CDC defines that as a significant exposure. And if so, we know the standard approach, mm -hmm. the protocols to this. The challenge often comes with symptoms that aren't as clear. So this, uh, algorithm, if you will, walks through what may be considered high-risk symptoms, low-risk symptoms. And one of the points I wanted to make was that not all the illnesses we will see this fall are COVID. But having said that, one of the messages we've given to our hospital staff and I would give to the schools is, if you're sick, stay home. It doesn't have to be COVID. So whether it's a staff person or a, uh, a, a student, if you have a fever and you're sick, First and foremost, please stay home. That will help protect others in your school and other families. So that will be part of this protocol. So to address your question, perhaps the next slide, we've come let up with make, what, go ahead, sir, I'm sorry. Doctor, let me interrupt. Eric, are the slides up? Okay, they're up. I'm not seeing them, but they're up. Okay, as long okay. as the people who are watching this can see them. Okay, yes, doctor, sir. go ahead, I apologize. So, yes, sir. Um, so we have more than a dozen scenarios and I have three that are incorporated in this uh, slide deck. And, and this is to help folks sort of walk through and understand how this algorithm can help them and how they can approach uh, students, faculty, and others uh, as the fall evolves. So in a scenario one, a child's riding the school bus Monday through Friday, not wearing a mask all the time, but only on the bus for 10 minutes, feels ill over the weekend, and then comes up uh, positive for COVID. And the two main concerns are who needs to be isolated and who perhaps needs to be evaluated. And so if you go to the next slide, with these scenarios that we're sending and, and sharing with the schools in our regions, and we're going to talk as a group at Ohio Children's Hospital, uh, we walk through how you would answer this. So who is isolated? Bus driver, no. In this case, the student was in the back of the bus and not near them. 
And again, foundationally, because they are not within six feet for 15 minutes, therefore they don't need to be isolated. Again, if the students were around them for less than 15 minutes and less and more than six feet, then there is no need for isolation. But I would point out that we assume when a family member is positive, whether you have a positive test on other family members that we treat the whole family as if that's a significant exposure and they are positive. And we know that testing can be a challenge. So we're trying to be uh, good stewards of that resource. So who should be evaluated by a provider who may need testing? Again, the second piece of the scenarios that we have constructed have to do with if you walk through each member of this scenario, who needs what? And in general, if you have no symptoms and you didn't have a significant exposure, then just watching and making sure you're okay is sufficient. Um, the next slide is a second scenario. Again, this is now in the classroom. It is closer to six feet. The, the student develops symptoms. And again, I'll remind you that um, within six feet and for more than 15 minutes is considered a significant exposure. Different people um, will use different definitions of sufficient uh, personal protective equipment, but without uh, getting off on that tangent, if we go to the next slide, um, we again answer those kinds of questions. So who should be isolated? Yes, classmates and teachers, if they were again within that distance and for the time frame that we've described. And in general, without symptoms, it's okay to watch. But if there's any concern about the symptoms that are developing, we are partnering with our primary care doctors to make sure that they have the information they need uh, to help manage these patients. So yes, all of these folks would be isolated because they were in that uh, six foot and 15 minute mark. Um, and depending on their symptoms depends on who uh, would move forward with more uh, uh, of a healthcare evaluation. The final scenario, we're gonna talk a little bit again about what has uh, come up before, which is uh, how does this work as far as sports are concerned? Uh, once again, there are basic tenants that we're going to, the student participates in volleyball. They have face coverings at the beginning, at the end of practice, but certainly not during practice. If they're closer to six feet, and the uh, teammate does uh, end up with symptoms and a test is positive, how do you handle this? So again, the questions are who should be isolated and who may need further evaluation? If you go to the next slide, um, the, um, the team uh, that was close to this person would need to be evaluated um, since that test is positive. Another one of the take home messages though, is that if you are, in contact with a contact of somebody who had COVID. So it's, a, it's once removed, that person does not um, count as somebody who has been uh, actively exposed to the infection. I'm happy to walk through the answers to this, Governor, but in the interest of time, um, I'm happy to turn it over to you and see if there are specific questions. These were meant to be just though examples of the scenarios we're trying to construct to help people walk through an appropriate way of handling the problems that are gonna arise as schools return. Uh, doctor, you wanna comment a little bit, and thank you, that was very helpful, uh, about uh, different scenarios based on whether you're outside or inside, how, how much that impacts that. And I think what may be a little uh, confusing, uh, is a little bit to me whenever I hear it, uh, is the, the, the standard of how long you're in, 
with a person and how that how that plays out uh, and what the other variables that might be you might look at to determine whether or not that person you, you think there's a there's a problem connected to that person and sports is a sports is a great example um, you know contact sports uh, whether whatever you call volleyball but uh, you know if you're close to the net uh, with somebody on the other side maybe you, you have some contact with them um, so you, you want to just sure go through the different variables yes sir I'm happy to um, first and foremost, and I know Patty mentioned this when she talked about ventilation, there's no greater ventilation than being outside. So how, how much breeze gets to pull droplets away from people, anything we can do outside would be great. And, and, and Patty has in the past talked about even if you can get a classroom outside, that natural outside ventilation is always uh, very helpful. Well, in I, fact, I yes. In fact, Doctor, you may have seen the picture I saw him, I don't know, a month or so ago. There's some articles about the 1918, 1919, and they had classes actually outside yes. in, in some yes. places. And, oh. Yes, and I've been accused of being in some of those classrooms, but I am not that old. <laughs> yet, um, in addition, um, part of the challenge is, 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 is being able to determine um, the contact level, if you will. And so, We've had questions that uh, arise about intermittent contact. Is it cumulative or consecutive? Is the contact for 15 straight minutes, or if I'm in contact with somebody five minutes every hour, five times? And I must tell you, there is no um, hard and fast evidence on the exact path to take. So we, again, are trying to make a judgment based, if you will, on the intensity of the exposure. And that's where one of the things that we're all working on um, is a hotline where people can call and we can help them sort through that uh, when that arises. So general principles, but the science gets a little iffy if you're trying to compare, for example, if five, five and five or 15 straight. Yes, sir. And I'd be happy to have my other colleagues uh, uh, weigh in, but uh, my understanding and all that we've read is it's very hard to discern one versus the other. Okay, good. Well, doctor, thank you very much. If you could stay with us as well. Yes, sir. We're gonna now go uh, to Lieutenant Governor for some state comments, and uh, then we're gonna go to questions. And if we could hold the three doctors here in case there's some questions for them. Uh, Lieutenant Governor. Th thanks, Governor. I was uh, making some notes as the doctors were talking. All three of them did a fantastic job of explaining uh, the situation uh, uh, that they that they all uh, the, the 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 different situations they were all describing. I know that when I from the time I wake up in the morning uh, to the time I go to bed at night, I'm consuming information on these topics, uh, particularly a lot of it related to school. And and I thought they all did a, a great job of of explaining because uh, we know that every family or every superintendent who's making a decision is. Is just uh, struggling with uh, getting all the health data right, uh, thinking about all of their academic options, uh, family circumstances. We know how those things are difficult choices uh, as it relates to work and health and mental health and, and trying to make the, the best choices for your children. So all of this information that we get helps. Uh, and it's important to remember that we're all consuming this during a very difficult time. Uh, it, it's hard on the school officials and the teachers that are contemplating their future, the families that are contemplating their 
particular futures. I know we're all in a little bit different circumstances. In, in, in my case, my wife and I are comfortable with our daughters uh, headed back, uh, heading back to school this fall, but we know that there are many families and many circumstances where that may not work out uh, and may not be the best thing for those, for those families. And we know uh, how, because well, we talk to them, we talk to all the folks who are doing this, the governor and I do, and we know how people are struggling. Uh, and, you know, that's why, you know, nobody knows how this is going to go. Nobody knows exactly if you're in school, if you're not in school, how this is going to work for the fall. That's why I just want to remind people that the governor has given Ohio a choice in this. Uh, what he's asked is to say that the local schools are going to make the best decision based on their community standards. Families get to make the decisions based on uh, their circumstances. And I think we're going to learn a lot from that. We will, we will learn uh, from that process, which will inform next steps uh, as schools, families, and, and parents continue to learn. But I will say there is something that we do know. Uh, we know how to slow the spread of the virus. Uh, and uh, whether you're in school or outside of school, you do these things right and we'll make it more likely that all of this gets to happen in our futures because we will slow the spread of the virus. Um, and um, as we, as we uh, often say, back up, mask up and wash up. Uh, those are the things that work. Uh, and if we do them, uh, we're going to get a chance to uh, to do more things because we will have slowed the spread. So uh, I really appreciate the doctor's uh, advice there and counsel and, and governor, thanks for giving me a few minutes to to share share some thoughts and and uh, I know that that families and schools alike are struggling with these decisions. And so we all have to be we all have to be um, patient and 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 caring and understanding as we all work through this. Thank you very much. We're ready for questions. Um, we still have the doctors. If anyone has a question for one or all of the doctors, uh, or if you have a question for the Lieutenant Governor or for myself. Governor, our first question today was at WBNS 10 TV in Columbus. Hello, Governor. Can you hear me? Well, we're getting a little echo there, but I can't hear you. Yeah, I think. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay, great. Uh, Franklin County remains in the red and it's been there since the beginning of the health advisory. What are you hearing at the, as to why that is? And if it stays in red, do you think that will prevent high school football from happening? And to the doctors, how do you feel about children riding the school bus? If you had children in school, would you feel comfortable with them riding in a school bus to and from school, considering the social distancing concerns. Doc, doctors, I'll start. I'll do the Franklin County one. You guys can do the, uh, the, the bus uh, one. Look, I mean, I can only speculate uh, a better person to ask that would be, you know, uh, one of the health directors or medical doctor as far as Franklin County. Uh, Mayor Ginther and I have talked about this a lot. Uh, and, you know, if you look at Columbus itself, uh, it probably is the youngest uh, community and Franklin County probably is the youngest county as far as population. I don't have the data, but um, it's, it's, a, it's a younger group of people. Uh, and one of the things that we have seen uh, is that particularly with 20 to 29 year olds, 
you know, they're picking it up at a much heavier rate than they were. And I think visually you can just see that they're out and about a lot. Uh, that's understandable. So the fact that Franklin County has more young people uh, is probably uh, a great advantage for the county, uh, but it probably also is a reason that you're seeing uh, the spread, uh, you know, continue here in Franklin County. Um, continued there in Franklin County. Uh, let me go to let me go to the doctors, and we'll talk. They can uh, take the question about ride, riding a school bus. I think I'm going to I'm going to take the school bus question. So I, I think it's always fair to say, hey, would you let your children do this? Uh, and my answer to that question is yes, I would. I understand that bus riding feels um, different. It feels more constrained. It feels like children are in very close contact, which they are. But the good news is children are facing forward. If they're behaving on the bus, they're facing forward. Um, if they're wearing masks, if they are not sick, um, if they practice hygiene before and after being on the bus, uh, then I think children can ride the bus safely. And I think that the bus, you know, riding the bus to school is the only way that some children get to school. Uh, and I would hate to limit access to in-person school because of some kind of transportation constraint. So I think we can make bus travel safe for children. And I think, um, I think that I would support that, yes. Okay, any other doctors? Okay, we'll go to the next question. Next question is from uh, Jeff Reddick at uh, WSYX in Columbus. Hi, Governor. Uh, thanks for running this again. Uh, for the doctors, uh, I believe it was last week or a week and a half ago uh, when the state's mask order was issued for uh, schools and students, K through 12 specifically, it was mentioned that the Ohio Children's Hospital Association uh, said that asthma, allergies, or sinus infections would not be considered exemptions from wearing a mask. And I know those conditions specifically become touch points for parents with children who have asthma, allergies, sinus infections regularly. Why won't those get you out of wearing a mask if you're K through 12? And let me just jump in before they, they answer. Ultimately, you know, these determinations are going to be made by the principal. They're going to be made by the, by the teachers. Uh, what the, the doctors offered and what the uh, uh, American Pediatrics Association, uh, the Ohio chapter offered uh, was the best medical advice they could give. So let me turn it to the doctors for that. Uh, Governor, I'd be happy to try and answer that. And, and what I can tell you is when that document was constructed, um, we uh, asked for help from a lot of experts. And one of the groups we asked for help was, was our pulmonologists and our pulmonologists are our lung doctors. And those are the doctors that manage these patients. And they were very clear that most patients with those disorders, a mask would not interfere with their ability to breathe or their ability to function well. And they felt that the importance of masks protecting those patients from getting an infection in their lungs far exceeded any risk that there was in wearing them. So um, there was a lot of thought. It's a very good question. There was a lot of thought put into that, but we actually reached out to experts who take care of these patients and they felt strongly that these kids needed the protection of a mask. Okay, next question. Next question is from Andy Chow at Ohio Public Radio and Television. Hi, Governor. Thanks for uh, having this press conference. I wanted to talk about uh, the 
definition of close contact being within six feet for longer than 10 to 15 minutes. What we've seen in other states that uh, a lot of controversy starts to pop up when pictures of crowded hallways start to circulate. Are crowded hallways dangerous at schools? Uh, I'm gonna to refer to the doctors, so who wants to take it? I can, I can take that question. So um, I'd say quickly, yes, crowded hallways are, are probably not optimal for a lot of reasons, not just COVID. Um, it gets again back to the length of time in that hallway. And so um, if you remember back to your own high school days, it was unusual to be traveling in a crowded hallway for more than 10 minutes. Uh, so I think that's an, an aspect of duration that we have to consider. I mean, ideally schedules would be staggered in a way so that kids weren't crammed up next to each other. Um, so the short answer is, yeah, they're not optimal. They're not great, but they shouldn't be prohibitive to school uh, participation and they should be managed. We can manage those better. And, and if I may say that uh, a crowded hallway with masks is a different calculation than a crowded hallway without masks. So back to Dr. Manning's assertion earlier that masks are priority number or number one. Okay, thank you very much. Next question. Next question is from Scott Hallis of the Xenia Daily Gazette. Hey, Governor, how you doing? Hey, Scott. Uh, thanks for uh, taking my question. So the doctors have all said that, uh, you know, being outside and having good ventilation is an important thing and that there's no way to kind of discern whether five minutes of contact three times is better or worse than, you know, 15 minutes at once. The Ohio High School uh, Football Coaches Association sent you a pretty comprehensive plan as far as how they plan to cleanse things and how they plan to try and keep things safe if there's a season. So how much of this information the doctors have said today regarding, you know, ventilation, everything is going to help sway your decision one way or another with regards to uh, football this fall? Well, I'll start off and I'm going to refer and see if any of the doctors want to make any comment uh, about that. Um, you know, Scott, the, these decisions are not made in a vacuum. <clears throat> and by that, I mean, um, it's not a question, does, the, does that young person play football? Does that person play, uh, play in the band? Does that person do whatever they're doing? Uh, part, part of the question is, what do they do if they're not doing that? Um, and so you know, I think one of the arguments for sports uh, is it does have a discipline to it. Uh, and, you know, we're still working on uh, the orders in regard to sports. We'll have that shortly. It won't be too much longer. Um, you know, we've basically taken uh, sports and let it play out during, during, the, during the fall. Uh, but the final de decisions, that will be coming very, very shortly. But um, part of the argument for sports uh, that is, I think, a strong one um, is first of all, there's a discipline to sports. Part of that discipline this year will be, have to be different than the normal discipline. Part of the discipline this year will have to be being safe. Uh, and I think our coaches, um, those who are assisting, those who are working with our, our young people. The time we've been living with COVID, we don't have a lot to go off of from of direct experience, but we do have some camp stories. And there's a story of a camp in Georgia published recently um, that went through a very detailed contact tracing report of what happened when one camper um, came down with COVID. And, you know, I think what we learned from that story very at a very high level is that, you know, children who are in close quarters, these are children who are, um, uh, many of whom are overnight campers, those who are at higher risk, 
Uh, it wasn't clear how rigorous the masking protocol was. Um, so we learned from that one large story that, that children are at risk and that children who are participating in activities where they're in close contact and not practicing those four practices that we talked about um, with, with vigilance and rigor, that uh, a lot of individuals will get sick very quickly. Um, and, uh, but that's all we have to go off of. We don't have a lot of other large volume, large grouping of children experiences. So, you know, moving forward with school, there's a lot of uncertainty about how this is going to go. And I think a lot about our early days as children's hospital, uh, children's hospitals leaders and, and children's hospitals in general and hospitals in general dealing with COVID. We learned a lot in the first few days and weeks and months in terms of our own dealing with COVID. Um, and our schools are going to do the same and we'll have to support them as they learn and maybe pivot and shift and make different decisions than they started with as they learn. I think that's the best that we can hope for. Thanks, Doctor. Anybody else? Patty, I'd also like to add that, uh, and first of all, Patty is spot on with her response. Schools have opened in other countries and so there are also lessons we've learned from some of the things that have occurred. Some have done it successfully, some of it not as successfully. I think you get back to what Dr. Manning has stressed. You have to do it, but you gotta do it right. And it depends on the community's effort to keep the uh, infection at bay, not just what the school is doing. Actually, I'll just chime in, Adam, that's, thank you for the reminder because uh, there was an excellent report from Israel about a school that opened and many high school students um, came down very quickly with COVID. And, uh, in reading that study, that report, it was very interesting how many things that they chose to do in the moment because of a heat wave, how that really hurt their efforts, closing the windows, taking off masks, worsening ventilation. Uh, it was like a, a recipe for COVID. And so we learned from that not to do that. Dr. Dr. Manning, you want to you want to give the uh, <clears throat> your five things again quickly, because that's that's the summary. That's I mean, the summary. summary so and I really have to thank our infectious disease colleagues who've led the way on this on this learning, but four things in order of importance plus number five. The first one is masking. The second one is distancing. The third one is hand hygiene. The fourth is cleaning surfaces. And then when you can do some work around ventilation in addition to all of those, you're gonna have a very good robust package of safety for your students. Thank you. Let me just add, uh, we're also, you know, monitoring what's going on in Indiana. Uh, Indiana starts school in some places uh, significantly earlier than we do. Uh, we also have real staggered openings of schools. So we're gonna be seeing schools opening fairly fairly soon. Um, and we're gonna be seeing what happens in, in those schools. So um, we're gonna monitor this very, uh, very, very closely. Next question. Governor, uh, this is the last question today and it'll be from uh, Tom Gallick at Gongwer News Service. Hi, Governor. We're hearing anecdotally and then seeing some reports from teachers unions that a significant number of teachers might either seek some kind of medical accommodation, retire or leave the profession. Are you worried about the ability of school districts to return in person to be able to staff uh, classrooms at a safe level? Uh, that's certainly a, a possibility. It's also, you know, a, a possibility once school starts um, that we get teachers who get sick. Um, and so, yes, absolutely. Um, you know, our, our belief is that uh, the superintendents, the school boards, uh, people at the local level can best gauge that and, and make that decision. But look, this is, as, as Dr. Manning said, uh, there's no real playbook for this. Uh, we've not had anything like this in our country 
um, you know, since 1980. Uh, we've seen what's happened in some other um, countries. Uh, we've learned some things, but, um, you know, we're just going to have to see. But sure, it's, it's absolutely something to worry about. And look, one of the things that we, we've talked about before is the importance for every school to try to identify uh, the students, uh, but also particularly, uh, you know, their adults, uh, whether they're a custodian, whether they're a teacher, uh, whether they work, work in the kitchen, wherever, who might have some medical reason to be particularly vulnerable. Uh, and so, you know, we have to continue to focus on, on those individuals. And as, as I've talked to superintendents, many times they have told me, we have separated them out. Uh, you know, this teacher will teach remotely uh, because he or she has this medical problem. Uh, so I would just ask uh, all our people in all our schools to continue to watch out for each other and to watch out for the people who are the most vulnerable. Um, and we know, who the, we, know, we know who those are. Thank you. That was the last question. Uh, I'd like to show as we, and, for, and thank you, to the three doctors, thank you very, very much. Uh, we learned a lot from you today and uh, thank you. We're very, very grateful uh, for you being with us. Let me show as we uh, wrap up a short video that our Bureau of Workers' Compensation video group put together for going back to school. Uh, it is quick, it is fun, uh, and it's a reminder of the critical things that our students and school staff do so that everyone can have the safest uh, back to school humanly possible. And again, this is what our teachers do every day. This is what our administrators do, whether COVID is out there or not, they work to protect our kids. It's back to school time and time for Ohio students to rise up. Just remember, back up, mask up, wash up. Back up, try to stay six feet away from others at the bus, at lunch, when playing, and especially indoors. Mask up. Covering your nose and mouth with a face covering helps prevent germs from getting on people close by. Wash up. Wash your hands often and for about 20 seconds. You did it. See, school's going to be a breeze. Just remember, back up, mask up, wash up. Well, mask on, and uh, thank you all very, very much. We look forward to seeing you on Thursday, Thursday at 2 o'clock. Thank you very much.